everyone and welcome to ESG Explored, the podcast that talks to people about how they are managing the environmental, social and governance factors in their business and how they are identifying the risks and embracing the opportunities. In this podcast, my co-host John Roskush and I will be joined by Associate Professor Ben Lyons from the Rural Economy Centre of Excellence. Welcome Ben. Hello Sarah and hello John. So Ben, before we jump in, because we will jump in in this episode, strap, your, strap on in people, this is going to be an interesting one. But before we jump in, can you tell us a little bit more about the Rural Economies Centre of Excellence? So the Rural Economy Centre of Excellence was set up in um, uh, late 2018 and it's four universities in it working in a research partnership um, based out of the University of Southern Queensland. Um, but we also have James Cook University out of Cairns. Central Queensland Uni out of Rockhampton and um, University of Queensland, but out of St Lucia. A lot of people think it would be Gatton, but we're with the Business and Economics and Law School at St Lucia, mainly because of their economic um, analysis capability there. And we've been working with the Department of Agriculture and Fisheries in Queensland on a state-based uh, research program, looking at just looking at how rural and uh, regional economies can go better. Um, so we do a range of things from value chains, we've done some work on today's topic which is obviously environmental offsets, um, renewable energy, we've done economic analysis on water, basically any input that goes into a rural economy whether it be workforce and, and things like that but also governance and how these places are led and how regions approach say innovation and growing an ag, system, ag tech ecosystem at Gundawindi through to you know, Quilby Wellspring and making that, that circular economy concept work. So um, really applied and really not trying to out-publish you know, Harvard University and you know, create those sort of KPIs, but really trying to help regions lead themselves. Um, very much focused on place-based approaches to um, innovation, economic diversification, all those challenges they face. Um, and the topic today around environmental offsets is, is a really key one. Yeah, so Ben, you've been travelling around talking to a lot of people about ESG and um, I guess the question I have is, what does it all mean? Um, where, where are we going with all this? You know, like, uh, I think that's really important. That's, you know? Yeah, the, the need for a Rosetta Stone of ESG. It's, so it's a really, it's, it's, it is a really... The, and I, I sort of, you know, when we've had a pre-conversation and talking about this discussion today, um, everyone's talking about it, um, and but a lot of the conversations, particularly for if we just go down into carbon, which is everything in agriculture and rural thing at the moment is is very predominantly around carbon oh. economy. Mm. Yep, and and that's that's unfortunate because the carbon technicians just start waffling on, and it's all about measurement, and it's very um, reductionist. And but also we just it's we haven't got back to the your question, which is why are we talking about it? Yeah. Um, and I think that's still a really big question holding us back. Um, and also we've used this analogy again in previous conversations. It's it's a little bit like the internet in the late 90s. We know it's coming. We're just not quite sure what it is. Um, and so that's why. And yeah, and I do sort of relate to it. That everyone I meet that knows a little bit more about it than me or or, you, or us, um, they know. They seem to act like they know way more. When the reality is, we don't know that much. We are talking about a really complex thing if it's carbon and then biodiversity and, and other things. But yes, ESG is uh it, it look it is and it, i think it's good that we're all talking about it um but and i think we're all worried about the the future of it and i suppose that's what we want to try and uncover a bit today is what the future might be 
Yeah, I guess probably my thoughts about it is that we seem to have got very locked into emissions. Um, everybody's worried about, okay, well, how do I fit into this requirement? Um, and we've probably missed the broader conversation about how are we going to manage all the other aspects of the environment mm. and the social aspect and the governance aspect. We, we need to get back to the conversation to the broader topic. Yep. You know? And I'm wondering what are your thoughts around, you know, particularly if you're talking about, you know, you, you're involved in rural economies. Do you see anything out there for from the differences out there in terms of how rural economies might look at this? So most rural economies or people in the regions and particular, let's say it's mainly, let's keep to agriculture for now. Um, and, you know, it's just in, say, the Central West and Longreach recently for event. Most people would be, uh, they're a little, they're very defensive about it because they see it as a really metropolitan-led climate change um, discussion and they're, and they feel already on the defence and, and often our industries, maybe our ag industries are our own worst enemies because we're all talking, oh, social licence, we're going to justify our social licence. And maybe that's wrong too. Like I think that's a little bit too defensive because I do see it as, look, there's a lot of opportunity here really. Like let's not get too frightened. We're not going to get told not to farm. And, and yeah, there's been some drivers around the fake meat movement and a lot of people are really hung up on that. And I, again, I don't think they should get hung up on that. I think they're talking to an audience that's already left you know, the red meat mm. space and it's not driving their business anyway. Um, and I, I think that, it, yeah, so nerve, a bit, bit of apprehension, a bit of distrust, yeah. which in turn feeds a lack of um, willingness to... It, it probably holds, the, holds us back from real looking at adoption seriously. Um, and also that, that sort of... It, it really has been driven a lot to date of the carbon projects and if you get on those government-provided maps on carbon projects, it's really been driven by a sector that is, you know, a broking sector, you know, selling or creating projects and selling. Um, and I think... But I think also that the, the fact that this is... You know, it's interesting in Longreach, um, you know, there's people really driving and saying we should look at it. Don't disagree with that. But even if people are ready today... I don't think they'd sell their car, their accus because yeah. they can see this future market's only going to be bigger. So why sell something cheap today when it could be a lot bigger? And and also the unknowns, John. You know, yeah. it's so unknown. And um, and yeah, and that's just carbon. We haven't really. It's really interesting in the central west. You've got what do you have? 150, say 300,000. There's about 150,000 square kilometres of cluster fencing, um, or cluster fenced mm -hmm. in 700 projects. And you know that. That might be a really in and and there we're talking about drought out there at the moment, drought preparedness in our um, university and rural economy centre work, and that's really interesting because drought out there is around pasture management. It's mm -hmm. not like eastern down tiers a rainfall drought, um, and so that you know biomass and measuring those things and all this stuff. But those cluster fences could be a really good opportunity for you know managing biodiversity yeah. and carbon via their biomass. So there is these, I, that's why I'm sort of generally fairly positive about it. Mm -hmm. um, but there's no one source of truth. Uh, and that's, that's probably no. the thing, maybe, and not, nor will there ever, I'm not sure. It's, it's, it, we're, we're trying to be prescriptive when we don't really know what we're talking about. Yeah. It's, coming back on that then, point then, Ben, um, how do you see data as helping with that? So that point of truth is a really good um, sort of yeah, conversation. Yeah. Is it data that exists, data that we need, data that... 
um, so, is shared? What, like, where do you think we need to go with it? Again, I've got to reference this recent memory of Tuesday in Longreach at a really good locally um, run um, ag tech event and had something like 32 speakers sort of speaking for 10 minutes. And there was probably 15 to probably 20 or more ag tech companies presenting. Um, a lot of them had this had a very similar pitch, um, which is we do everything, um, we provide all your data, we plug in all your machines, and we tell you what to do. And you know, we walk, we do everything but walk the dog, you know, sort of thing. And so then there's something for that too. There probably is. Um, so then they go into that, you know, it solves all your problems. But then a lot of and and growers are smart, right? You know, often we say, oh, you know, people and customers will they'll be more they'll stay irrational longer than we stay solvent. But no, these are really rational actors um, and the thing is they're not quite sure in believing well this technology or that technology and, and nor are the products themselves I think I think they're still at that fairly nascent stage and it's still maturing that ag tech sector in this country it's got great opportunity but I think on the data question even if they you know their promises are right is it data that's actually um, does it fit this ESG environment it might do it seems like it could um, but there's all these arguments around that as well, as in, and and then sooner or later, I suppose we'll get to that. But your consumers, you know, your beef consumer or your um, your you know your textile fashion consumer is asking for this. But that's not really. And we've done some research out of CQ University that's shown pre-pandemic, or actually pre and during the pandemic, um, the provenant, the credence factors around feeling good about what you're buying because it was carbon neutral, so forth, or look well looked after, just weren't there. They're not, they're not, there's no market signal yet. Um, so yeah, the data one is, is it's a bit of a rabbit hole, Sarah. Yeah. Um, it's, there's no doubt, there's, we're fast getting to this um, phase of lots and lots of it, but we don't use it, banks don't use it. You know, the most important ingredient to a rural business is dollars, right? Mm. Um, but they don't, banks don't really use it, they just use an asset. You know, you, you don't, you don't, for example, you can't get really sophisticated or adequate finance on an animal because it's, there's not enough data on it, it's too risky from a bank's perspective. So is that then coming back to your data that you have on farm activities as a whole? that is needed as opposed to that I think also that yeah so and I think you know a lot of you have a lot of farmers now that are saying like holy man you know the, the what I need to do to stay in business mm. in terms of compliance it seems to be mounting and that, we yeah. see it in the horticulture sector yeah. um, with all these different programs if you're dealing going into directed more closer to retail and luckily I suppose in remote livestock based production systems we're not having to do that as yet um, I think yeah, I, I guess the data question is a little bit like the carbon measurement one, is that it can dominate a whole conference or it can dominate a year's worth of Beef Central articles. Yeah. Um, but is it really the issue, mm. I suppose? Yeah. I think we'll get to a space where we're comfortable with how we can um, move that data. And we've had those bad examples where data, I think it was a really bad example where data was destroyed in a best management practice case. And I don't think that was... I could see the philosophy and the and the point that was being made. I don't think it was particularly practical or useful. Yeah. Have we lost a little bit of that common sense? We're listening to what the customer actually needs, and and rather than trying to sort of sell using data to sell a concept. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I I don't know, John, if the um, 
you know, we are so removed. You know, in the wool game, we were 17 steps removed from the customer. Yet yeah. we were, as a as a research and development corporation in AWI yeah. and Walmart before that, we were trying to bridge that, and really we weren't. You know, we we, we were saying we were, but we weren't. Um, I like use, I always like, and people are probably bored of it, and I'm a bit of a cliche. I always like using the wool industry examples because it was, you know, for 150 years it was our biggest ag industry, our biggest industry, mm-hmm. and a world leader in world agricultural and marketing systems. Um, and one that when I worked on and first got involved in ESG or CSR, it was as it was known in 2006, in a green sheet project. Um, it, you know, we were having these grapples around. You know, it, it's you know. We did the market study, so yes, low hearts or lifestyle of health and sustainability customers were a real thing back, you know, way back then, 15 years ago. Amazing. I think they were sort of pretty big in the 70s too. Um, you know, so it has been around this customer and this sentiment. Um, we've, I think, we've proven that you don't necessarily get a premium for it. Uh, you know, and I, I, and also it takes, and we've talked about this, John. It takes an enormous amount of time. The McAngus burger, or Angus being mentioned in any McDonald's menu, I mean, that conversation started in 1971 when they first went to McDonald's and met. It probably didn't get executed until the late 90s, I think it was 99. So there's an amazing amount of work and time um, around that customer sentiment um, to move. Um, And then I think, but uh, I think that, you know, the data one, yeah, and I, I just don't see data being the one driving it. I think it's this bigger question. And I don't know whether we should go down the route of saying customers you have to pay or see because I'm not sure we know. I'm not, I think we just have this, going back to the internet analogy, we have this overall titanic type movement that we know is coming. And let's look at the northern hemisphere climate and, and stuff, bushfires, China's drought. There's really going to be some strengthening of that from yeah, you know I metropolitan and there will be. Things, uh, yeah. You can you can see that, and certainly I looked at the the European standards in terms of looking at biodiversity uh, for farms, mm. and they're quite significant. There is quite a lot involved in doing that, and and I can't see that they would turn around and say to Australia, well, you can have something not much less, less mm. than what we have. Um, so markets will speak, and investors mm. will speak. So I think I'm wondering whether you. What's your experience about how industry, any kind of business, and particularly rural businesses, might position themselves? They've got investors on one side talking to them and customers on the other, but maybe they should be listening to certain people and not getting too caught up in the hype of the data and the hype of what's... Yeah, and I think, and I think, unfortunately, we're going to have people marketing these solutions to them and their ESG problem, and that's given. Um, They're going to have to be... I really liked, again, in the wool industry, I really liked working um, with an example, which was the Australian Land um, Management System, or you know, which was Jock Douglas and, and Tony Gleeson, but others, many others, you know, working, and it started in southern Queensland, but worked around Australia, and they went way broader than this car. They early on identified that this car, but that was like something that started in 1998. It got some legs and had some really, had a really strong first 10 years, and then whether it was, too often it was just sort of put down to being too early for its time, you know, too ahead of its time, right? It was the early 2000s, um, and they were uploading and, and training growers to upload data and do, you know, audits of, you know, and 
I like it was it was holistic. Um, it was accredited. They'd done an ISO accreditation of their, they didn't. And this was another thing, like how they communicate. When they went out and said, "Oh, we're ISO accredited," every farmer all of a sudden thought, "We're going to have to get ISO accreditation." No, no, the system is. You don't have to. But it was all these um, ergonomic issues and challenges to adoption of that. Um, and they recognised it. And they, um, you know, it's sort of. I think AgForce and others have, have worked with that group recently in their ag care um, sort of development, which is good. But um, so that there is some sort of institutional memory of those things. But the, you know, that, the reason I raised that one is that that was the one um, green product and marketing Australian wool that actually got picked up by a retailer in mm -hmm. Japan, and they supported it for two years, and then a retailer and, and um, in Korea supported it for another year and elders were behind it and then it sort of as these things do it sort of it, it failed to get that critical mass you know and there was sort of a general distrust within the livestock RDCs or other or, or is it, there was a, a lot of not invented here you know it wasn't invented by us so we're not going to support it um, which also holds back some good ideas but that's that's the market that's the challenge. Is the times different now? So I think the time is definitely different now um, but our ambition maybe to develop a really complex problem has not changed. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we probably love adding, oh, mine, but because we want to have a unique selling proposition, John. Yeah, yeah. So mine does, mine walks the dog as well as complies <laughs> with the EU 2019 standards. Right. So, so that's, and that, that's sort of unfortunate because there is a, a, um, it, yeah, it's an, it, it, it it's interesting the pri where the private sector and government and or industry regulation will play in that, mm -hmm. and you know we've talked about it a bit before. But where we can we are scared that this regulation of, is coming down and coming from if we're in Queensland a very George Street or William Street centric yeah. viewpoint, um, and that might hurt regions. What one of the things I'd like to think about is um, let's think about businesses, uh, whether it's regional businesses, um, what are the opportunities in regional areas? Because, you know, a lot of regional areas are can-do. They've got a different paradigm around the way they do business. I think we've had conversations before about how they work together and, and how sometimes government tends to stop that process from, from happening. Um, can regional communities maybe have a better opportunity in the circumstances than some, you know, sort of urban type. So, so I think the beauty of the regional setting um, is that they can get on and do things without as many, say, encumbrances or they've got, um, they can collaborate easier and have and get on with it and they like to get on and do things and, you know, we've seen that in many, many different, you know, communities. Um, a few, and you could see that you know you get a smart CEO at a council and a smart mayor, you know, and a and a and, and a, a local government that allows collaborate or allows other people to participate and collaborate with them. That that really you know, and that's where we've seen regions that do really well is the local government doesn't act like it's the only answer, you know, and it allows other other entities to do things, you know, um, and that's hard because those elected people often say, well, I get elected by everyone, I must be right, um, and it's my way or the highway, and that, that we see that unfortunately a lot too. So that that will be one restriction and challenge for regions to do this. Um, 
And that's a shame because often in the, particularly the isolated regions, the local government's the biggest thing in town. You know, mm. it's the biggest entity, it's the biggest um, company, if you like, employer, and has the most economic resources. So they do have some opportunities, particularly if, you know, I remember talking to Adrian Volders about, you know, say Gundawindi and the Inland Rail and things, you know, he'd say, well, you could generate local credits. And let's face it, that local environmental offset being generated within the vicinity of a project is a much more valuable exercise in what we're actually trying to achieve, which is sustainability and, and the natural capital. So I think that, that'll take, that'll take, that is an opportunity, John, but also we are talking about entities and, and regions, that, many of which are just fighting for um, survival, you know, yeah. so when they're in survival mode, they're not necessarily, maybe they can be at their most creative mm-hmm. and um, a, um, then and, and, and move into that, but then also they're, they're, they're thin with resources and that's something we look at, is that how can we, is there a different layer of government or something that federal and state can do differently from this otherwise very mendicant system of put your hand out, we'll give you a little bit and then come back in another couple of years and we'll give you a little bit to do that. And and also these programs, it, it, what we call the continuous cycle of discontinuity, um, you know, and often those two or three year funding programs that are very, seem really, really great at the start. They, they end up taking people out of the region is one thing we found. Mm-hmm. Um, people use them to get funded and get go into a metropolitan or a larger um, centre. Um, or even worse, they'll use a Brisbane or a Sydney or a Canberra, you know, consultant who'll execute it or a Twombly that'll yeah, execute yeah, it. Yeah. And so, in back to your question around whether regions, so yeah, on on the surf, on the face of it, yeah, for sure, because you can see how these they could broker things, they could help their producers, um, you know, they could work with, they could create a natural capital asset that they could also have coexistence within a, in an agricultural sense. Um, but what, you know, we, yeah, we probably need a few more examples of case studies that work. And I haven't seen, I, I hope you guys can share a few that work well, because I haven't seen I'd enough. I'd love to see big companies, I suppose, maybe sort of going to the region saying, these guys have got cut through, they've got engineering capability, they've mm. got capacity, let's work with them. You know, and I think there has been some cases that I probably don't want to mention them here because I don't, I haven't sort of gone and checked the background <laughs> of it. Yeah. Um, but I think what they, what they can do and what local government can do. Yeah is to allow bigger companies to say, okay, let's let's do something that's going to help the region. Yeah. Uh, and you, you have, I suppose, less red tape to the action. You're closer to, I think you mentioned, there was a lot of steps to get to. Yeah. Where you needed to get to, there's probably less so in those regions. They definitely add support. So the live example of a, a real, where a council and community have led a project that I think is the best, but it's still only a concept, has been that Quilby Wellspring Circular Economy where it's solar um, distilling artesian mm. water into a craft brewery and yeah. an aquaponics production yeah. sort of loop, nutrient mm. loop. Yeah. Um, and they've, you know, they've, they've gone above and beyond where I think a local government needed to. But then it's, and why has it stopped or why hasn't it progressed any further? Um, it just doesn't get the buy-in from people at a high level of government with the funding um, because they don't understand that it could work. And we've sort of proven theoretically it works and um, economically on paper it works. Um, the university thinks it works and... Um, you know, and there's people, we, we actually did a fake advertising campaign <laughs> for people that would operate and it would attract people. There was people that applied mm. for the job to run an aquaponics yeah. set up like that. Um, and, 
Yeah, Queensland's the only province with a uh, craft brewing economic development strategy in the world. Um, but it, but again, it, where did it, where did it, where's it fell down? It hasn't fallen down at local government there. They've done more than what most local governments would do. It has fallen down when it's cutting through and saying we should try this because there's 108 other small towns like Quilpie in Australia that could get energy from this, get nutrient, better food delivery from this. Have a tourism asset and re, you know, reinvigorate the centre of their town. So the, you're right. I think you know. I think you have a belief that re regions have got a, a better opportunity. So yes, they do. It's just how do we get other governments and other people outside of those regions to have the faith in them? So we, we're going to ask companies uh, to go out and go and look a bit closer. <laughs> go, go and have a look. Go take a drive out there. <laughs> take so. a drive out there and enjoy the beer and the uh, the circular economy out at Quilpie. But then, um, thank you. As always, you've challenged our thinking on things, and you've provided <laughs> and you've provided some great examples. And I reckon it'd be great to have you back again really soon to do some more about this, uh, to look a little bit closely at, at that circular economy, look a little bit closer about um, you know tracking and provenance and all of those sorts of things that come around with the next layers of the things that we've been talking about. It's fantastic to be here. Thank you. Right. Good luck Thanks in doing it. It's very good. Queensland Trust for Nature and ESG Explored acknowledge the traditional owners on the country throughout Australia, their diverse and continuing connections to the land, sea and community. We acknowledge they were the first conservationists and scientists and have cared for this land for their future generations. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and we extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening today. <laughs>